you're listening to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you conversations for the health of all things. In these special episodes, I am joined by guests on the show to explore how the osteopathic concept presents in their lives and learn about their personal and professional stories. Ranging from osteopathic physicians to those familiar with osteopathic treatment to those associated with osteopathic medicine in a variety of settings, these conversations provide new perspective on lighting the way for the path to best health. Please note that while I am a physician and may interview other physicians, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey with This Osteopathic Life, back with an episode of Conversations for the Health of All Things. Today, I'm to- joined by Dr. Elisa Zhang. She is an ophthalmologist and oculoplastic specialist in Cleveland, Ohio. She's also a life coach for physicians who feel trapped, burned out, stuck at their job, and are looking for joy again. Dr. Zhang also helps physicians build their path toward financial independence so they can practice medicine on their own terms. I hear so many threads of health in there, so I'm so glad you're here to join me today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, tell us a bit about your story. How did you come into medicine, into your specialty? So when I was a medical student, you know, we all do our rotations. And I really found that I love surgery, but I really loved fine um, specific surgery. And ophthalmology was definitely kind of the finest surgery you could do. <laughs> So I actually did an MD PhD and for my PhD research, I worked on a microscope and actually did electrophysiology recordings from rat brains. And so I was already really attuned to doing, um, uh, to doing surgery under a microscope. And so in ophthalmology, we also do surgery under a microscope. So I think I was drawn to that as well. Mm-hmm. My PhD is in neuroscience and actually about 50% of neuroscience research is in vision. And so there's also that connection. Yeah, I love that. So let's look at a couple of those details as we see how your story expands and details being the primary word here. So it sounds like you're pretty good at that, right? Tuning in, getting focused, really seeing some of the minutia that can be so important to the health of a person and their vision. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so vision is such an important aspect to our lives. I think when most people think about the different senses, you know, vision, hearing, taste, touch, vision is really top on the list of what people don't want to lose. And I've heard more than once a patient say, I'd rather be dead than blind. Mm, Wow. Yeah. And how is it that you have found being able to restore or maintain or sustain vision for your patient? Yeah, I really found when I was a medical student that I much preferred specialties where I was looking at improving quality of life than actually just trying to save a life. It really felt a lot more rewarding for people to actually, you know, come into their own and uh, feel renewed and rejuvenated. I also don't know that I really love dealing with, you know, end of life situations as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so this is a relatively small specialty. And then it sounds like a subspecialty on top of it. What was the process like navigating into that world and postgraduate training for you? Yeah, so I, I did ophthalmology residency, which I really loved. I did uh, my residency at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And I actually had decided to go into oculoplastics even as I entered my residency. So uh, ophthalmology is a three-year residency, but you do a intern year before that. And so I did a preliminary medicine year. And during that year, I actually 
did a rotation with an ophthalmologist who was also an oculoplastic specialist. And I really just really enjoyed what he did. I felt like uh, oculoplastics had a huge array of additional types of surgery. I also really liked the aesthetic approach. I actually, one of my uh, hobbies is sewing and crocheting. And so I did actually really like suturing as well, which you do a lot in, uh, in plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. So when I started residency, I already had it in my mind that I probably wanted to do oculoplastics. And so I really pursued that from the get-go. And aquaplastics has have a huge variety of different uh, types of surgeries we do. I repair um, eyelids and also operate within the orbit. Um, so the orbit is the area around the eye. And so if someone has like thyroid eye disease or um, has like a tumor or something in their orbit or like enlargement in the lacrimal gland and needs a biopsy, like all those things are en- encompassed in um, aquaplastics. I also do things like removing eyes, unfortunately, when that happens due to trauma or, you know, end stage uh, disease as well. Um, But also just a lot of eyelid surgeries, lifting up eyelids. If eyelids are turned in, turned out, putting them back in the right position. Yes. And so in that we have vision, right? This grand sense that engages us with much of the world. And then this capacity to also see those small details. And we think about operating within the orbit, you know, the limited amount of space and the high yield, maybe high stress at times, you know, actions that are required of you. How do you hold space for that, you know, to see both that grand vision with and for your patients and those really small, intricate details in that space? What's it like in that moment when you're in the operating room? Yeah, there are definitely some uh, surgeries that I've just done, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of that feel totally comfortable. And I just know my anatomy. And even though some people can be a little different, you know, once you get to a certain state, you know, it's all good. Um, but yes, uh, the big orbital surgeries still make me a little nervous at times because it is a really small space and it's tight. And um, recently I just actually had to take out a very large uh, tumor. The tumor was literally as big as the eyeball itself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it went great, but you know, those kind of surgeries don't happen all that often, um, but it makes a di- big difference for the patient. Yeah, and I'm curious, as you've come through this, having been operating for a number of years now and working now with coaching, did you find you used some coaching techniques to support yourself in that space of such a significant surgery? Actually, surprisingly, yes. I mean, I, I didn't go for coaching for you know the um, stresses of surgery, but I did recently have a surgery. Uh, it was a cataract surgery, and actually the cataract came out beautifully. Then I put in the lens, the artificial lens, and there was a scratch on the lens right in the center of the lens. Mm. I sat there looking at it and I was like, I can't leave this in. So <laughs> I went ahead and you know took the lens out. But unfortunately, in taking the lens out, um, had a complication where the posterior capsule broke. And so it just became a snowball of you know complications. And the patient has done well, um, but, you know, there was definitely that time where I was like, oh, I should just left that lens and maybe that mm-hmm. scratch wouldn't have even affected her vision at all. Mm-hmm. But with coaching, instead of really just hounding myself and rating myself, I realized like, there's no reason to do that. Like, I can't change the past. I can just take that experience and learn from it and know in the future that, you know, maybe just leave the lens but there's nothing I can do about the past. And so braiding myself about it is not actually helpful to me or to my patient. Mm-hmm. And 
just looking at it as a learning experience and how I can be a better surgeon in the future is the gift that can come out of the, you know, the experience. Absolutely. And so you mentioned not necessarily looking to coaching for your own benefit as a surgeon, but gleaning that. What did bring you into coaching? And so uh, right now, fellowship, I originally went to a practice in Virginia where uh, it was a private practice uh, situation. It was actually quite a good job. I ended up leaving. um, Well, I had gone to that practice thinking that I was going to buy in and be partner. And when I realized that I was not necessarily going to want to buy in and be partner with the owner of the practice, I thought, well, that means that I really shouldn't stay. And so I decided I want to come back home to Cleveland. I grew up in Cleveland. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to come back because um, after three years in Virginia, I was just starting to make friends. And so it just really sucked. And I had a lot of friends in Cleveland. Um, uh, and actually, I did my, um, uh, my MD, PhD at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. So not only did I grow up in Cleveland, I spent a lot of other formative years in Cleveland. And it was really during those uh, years that I made a lot of friends who are staying in Cleveland and will be in Cleveland. So um, I ended up taking a job at a hospital, which I never thought I would actually do. And I just, I really uh, value efficiency and autonomy. And you really give that up when you're working for a hospital. But when I was talking to uh, the person who hired me, who eventually, you know, would be my boss or my direct report, um, you know, she kind of assuaged my fears. And the truth was everything I worried about was true. And I burned out fairly quickly, just having really no control of my schedule and no control over a lot of things. I was also on call 24-7 for acleroplastics, being the only acleroplastic surgeon. And yeah, like it doesn't sound like that would be a a lot, but it's a level one trauma center. So all the eyelid lacerations, all the nucleations, um, there is actually quite a bit of trauma. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anytime you just have to be ready to be there, even if you don't have to be there the whole time that alert, you know, even when it's minimal can be wearing for sure. Yeah. And the thing is, of course, it's not going to be as acute as a gunshot wound. So what happens? You get bumped and bumped and bumped. And so, yeah, you could sit around all day just waiting to go to take a patient to the operating room when it is mm-hmm. these call cases. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so how did you find coaching helped you in managing some of those expectations when you, you thought it was going to be one way you were told it wasn't going to be, and then it was that original way you expected, which can lead to a lot of frustration. How did coaching help you navigate that space? Yeah, it's really just a lot of mindset work. So I just found myself constantly frustrated at things that I couldn't change. And what I realized with coaching that it's really Yes, I can't change the circumstance, but I can change what I'm thinking about the circumstance. And even things like, okay, they're my, you know, my schedule's overbooked, but I get to see these patients and I'm choosing to see these patients instead of I have to see these patients. Mm-hmm. You know, those little changes in just the wording and what your mindset is and just the gratitude. So, you know, I had heard of practicing gratitude in the past and I don't know, I guess I kind of poo-pooed a little bit, but you do realize how just making those little changes makes you realize like how lucky and grateful I am to be in this situation. I mean, 
when there was a time when I was a medical student that I just really wanted to get into ophthalmology and I worried about not matching and then how excited I was when I matched my first choice, you know, residency program. And, you know, then there was a time when I decided I want to go to ocular plastics, which actually has a really low match rate. And, you know, then how excited I was to get ocular plastics. So then I think about, well, you know, how many times in my life in the past had I just, you know, wished to be where the position I am now as an attending and, you know, having graduated um, from, you know, great med school, you know, going to a great residency program and having like wonderful training. I love my fellowship training and really just taking that in and being like, okay, this, it's an honor to see patients. I get to see these patients. And, you know, it's not the patient's fault that the scheduling is the way it is. And so there's no reason to take anything out on them, which of course I wouldn't actually do, but just take a breath and get to the next place. The other thing I realized is like, you know, sometimes when you're really behind, you think, okay, I just need to get through patients quickly. But, you know, part of going to medicine was having connection with people and wanting to help people. And that's the way it is with coaching too, right? You want to help people. And one thing that was lost in medicine is like when you're trying to go fast is that you miss that personal connection. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes even when you're behind, you just sit and like spend the extra two, three minutes to chat with a patient about something completely not related to why they're there. It can actually just make the visit so much better and, you know, really, you know, change that mindset to being like, okay, this is why I mm -hmm. practice medicine. Yeah, I love that you bring that up. I actually was working with a med student today and talking about that, right? Just ask a question, ask what's going on and remember it the next time you bring it up. And last time we met, you were about to do this. It makes such a difference just to make that human to human connection in those visits. I love that. And as you move through this, what motivated you to now begin coaching other physicians in this space? How did you make that transition? Yeah, just the transformation that I myself got with coaching. Um, I really wanted to bring that to other people. And also, again, that one-on-one -on -one, um, connection that I really look for with having with patients. I mean, you really get that with coaching, right? Because with coaching, you're meeting with people for, you know, half an hour, an hour at a time, you know, weekly. And, and so, you know, all the people that I've coached, I essentially, you know, really do become friends with um, and really connect on a different level. And I've, I've really valued that. Yes. I also feel like, um, you know, I also feel like, you know, the, the special part about like money and medicine is that we really don't learn anything about finance or personal finance or investing in medicine at all. And also just being a woman, I think a lot of us women kind of shy away from finances. I think a lot of us, you know, think, I don't know, our husbands will deal with it or the men will deal with it. Um, I do know a lot of, you know, married physicians where, you know, they really just let their husband take care of the money, whether or not their husband's a physician or a non-physician. Um, it's funny because in my household, so I am married and my husband just lets me take care of all the, the money and finances. I've just had an interest in money and finance um, actually since uh, uh, med school. Mm -hmm. and yeah. And how have you gained your expertise in that space? What have you found to be helpful resources to build that knowledge base? So back when I was in med school, so I did the MD PhD program, which on average takes eight years and I did take the eight years. And so, and I did in Cleveland, Ohio, where the housing market's really affordable. So actually a lot of MD PhDs do um, buy a house because eight years is long enough that uh, it's worthwhile to buy a home. And you know, even though our stipend was $20,000, like we actually still qualified to buy a home, which is kind of amazing as well. Mm -hmm. 
And so I grew up in Cleveland and I actually ended up buying um, my home for my parents. But during that process of, of getting a mortgage and learning all that, I started reading about personal finance from that standpoint. And I just kept reading more and more about it. I I think I I kind of always love money. And even as a kid, like I kind of <laughs> hoarded my money more than I spent it. Like I just love to like count it and, and like, I, you know, <laughs> And so that, that was that part of me. And then um, I actually read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and really got interested in real estate investing. So I actually started real estate investing when I was a grad student. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that when I was a grad student doing research, it wasn't necessarily the best time of my life. And I definitely thought like, okay, I, I want to find other means of income. This multiple streams of income sounds great to me. And uh, so I actually flipped two houses, like back in that 2008 crash, I bought two oh, wow. uh, bank owned properties. I bought one house for 20,000, one house for 33,000, you wow. know, um, and got it fixed up and sold them both for quite a profit. Mm-hmm. So um, from that, I was kind of hooked. Then I kind of actually went back to med school and, you know, during <laughs> residency and fellowship was just a little too busy to figure all that out in a new market as well. But I definitely caught that investing bug. Um, I also read, you know, about um, traditional investing stocks, you know, mm-hmm. index funds, mutual funds, all that as well. Yeah. And what do you find to be the biggest hurdles you have to help your physician colleagues overcome when talking about finances? I think just like having the interest, a lot of people just are intimidated by the numbers or no one's ever really talked about money. So in a lot of households, and I think the U.S. in general, it's kind of taboo to talk about money. You know, you don't talk about how much you make. You don't talk about, you know, money in general. And I think that's actually a real downfall because actually if we talked a lot more about salaries and what to expect and knew um, how much people made, then it would actually really help in our own negotiations, right? So I don't know how long it took, you know, when I... Um, took this hospital job, I had no idea about like MMGA data and that, you know, the, the percentiles and RVUs at different levels. And it was a real disadvantage probably in negotiating my contract. But before I had um, interviewed in, in private practices and I had interviewed in enough private practices that I did get a span of like, okay, what's reasonable in terms of base salary and production bonus and benefits offered. But when it came to the hospital system, that was a completely different compensation model. Mm -hmm. And how would you advise those who are going into negotiations now to, you know, arm themselves with that information and to approach that conversation? Yeah, definitely. Actually, Linda Street, um, I'm going to give a shout out to her. Mm -hmm. She um, is a life coach who coaches on negotiation. And so she actually gets the MMG data and goes over it with you if you do a consultation with her. And I think it's totally worth it. I mean, I'm sure that I would have negotiated a contract that would totally paid her fee had I no. I mean, I don't I don't know that she was actually doing it when I actually started mm-hmm. my hospital job, but yeah. um, I definitely recommend that because, you know, women physicians are still paid um, I think 80 cents on the dollar to male physicians, mm-hmm. even when you, you know, take away like part-time and maternity leave and all that kind of stuff, it's still quite uh, a difference. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as you look to continue growing your coaching practice, what do you see bringing through as the most profound benefits you can offer to physicians who might be seeking that joy or freedom again? Yeah, just taking life by the reins and and creating the life that you want now. So I think one thing as physicians is that a lot of us have a rival fallacy, right? We think it's going to be better when we get to a certain point. And 
you know, for many of us at a certain point was being an attending, but then we get to be attending and we realize, oh, everything's not better. Well, you know, what's the next better thing? And, you know, for some of us, actually, this was me for a little while. It's like, well, the next better thing is retirement, right? So <laughs> I should get retirement as soon as possible, right? The whole fire movement, right? Financial mm-hmm. independence, retire early. And actually through coaching, I realized that you really got to enjoy the journey, right? And if getting to financial independence takes, you know, a year or two or three longer, but you're enjoying the journey, then, you know, what is those extra years? And if that means, you know, cutting back on um, working hours so that you actually enjoy life more, or, you know, even taking a job that pays less, but you enjoy that job a lot more, you have that autonomy, you know, really looking at what values you have for yourself and what values um, the different jobs are offering and how that fits in and, really making choices based on what you really want out of life, I think uh, just can be such a game changer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what have you found to be the most effective ways that you are working with physicians? Is it in direct one-on-one and group settings? What is the preferable way that you're engaging? Yeah. So currently I just do all one-on-one coaching. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nice to have that individualized attention in that space. Yeah. And as we're, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. And when I do the financial coaching, I also think people, you know, don't want to wave out all their finances all over the place, right? So I'll actually go over, you know, exactly how much debt people have and their income and where it's going. And so I think in that uh, scenario, probably always stay one to one for those kind of consultations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And even in the one-on-one, there can be a lot of shame around that, right? For laying out all the, the red that's there. How do you help soften that conversation, you know, take away some of that and just maybe make it about the math in that space? Right. Yeah. So I just, you know, say everything's a circumstance here, right? The debt you have, debt's not good. Debt's not bad. Debt just is. It's neutral, right? You know, you take real estate investing, right? So real estate investors are always looking to get more debt to leverage their money so that they can make more money. So to them, a mortgage you know, is really good debt. And often we actually even think that the mortgage in our primary home is good debt. So if there's good debt, you know, there's some, you know, you can attribute debt to being good or bad, but really it's just all in the eye of what debt is, right? If you have um, a mortgage where the mortgage is more than the value of the house, then is that mortgage really good debt? So really all debt is just a circumstance and just kind of laying that out in the beginning and showing that to people, I think kind of makes them realize, okay, yes, these are just numbers. We're just going to go through the numbers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as you look at burnout, you mentioned for yourself, seeing those spaces where expectations don't match and loss of control. Are there any other ways that you can highlight for physicians that they might be heading toward burnout when they might not notice it yet, but a good time to intervene before it's too far gone? Yeah. So, you know, if you find yourself, um, really disconnecting from patients and disconnecting from people and just looking at, you know, each person as the next, you know, um, the next appointment you have to get through the, the next set of RVUs that's coming in, the next set of collections that's coming in, that depersonalization, I think that's a clear sign of burnout. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, uh, if you're sitting in your car before uh, when you like park in the parking lot for work and you're just not wanting to go in, that's probably a sign of burnout. Mm-hmm. If, you know, you're just taking kind of a lot longer to do things that you normally built to used to do quite efficiently, uh, that could be another sign of burnout. So I think there's a lot of signs of burnout. Um, and, 
you know, there's no shame in burnout. I think the, the healthcare system keeps asking more and more of us physicians as they keep compensating us less and less. And I think the statistics now show about an average of 40% of physicians are burned out. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, not quite the majority, but it's, it's a lot. Pretty prevalent. Yeah, absolutely. And I love those simple ways to just check in, right? That depersonalization and an opportunity there to notice it when it's problematic, when we're no longer having that connection, but then also to notice when we shouldn't be personalizing things, right? And we shouldn't take it personally when something happens, kind of like in your complications in the surgical story. It's like, here's a thing that happened. It doesn't have to be about me. I can learn from it and move on. Such a great balance to integrate yeah. those there. Yeah, and patients too, right? Like, you know, a patient may be having a bad day. And so they may be taking something out on you that has nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you just got to hold back and be like, okay, like patient saying words <laughs> that doesn't actually mean anything of what I have to be thinking about those words. It doesn't necessarily reflect anything about me. Yeah. And so as everyone hears all that you're doing, what can you tell us about how you are navigating all the different activities in your life? There's always that phrase balance, right? If we want to consider that as even a thing that exists, but how do you put it all together in a way that doesn't add burnout to previous burnout? Yeah. So I make sure to get plenty of exercise Um, especially when it's nice out. So I love to go biking, hiking, kayaking. And so I kind of leave my weekends very weather dependent. So like last weekend was raining. And so I ended up spending a lot of time working. But when this weather is beautiful, I'm out kayaking or I'm out biking for at least a few hours. And I do definitely plan um, and schedule exercise throughout the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else that helps you kind of be restorative in your life? So I have a great relationship with my husband. We have dinner together every night and there's just like kind of that set dinner hour. And I think a lot of families do that as well. And I think mm-hmm. uh, obviously the, your, for most people, family is you know really higher in your priorities. Um, and unfortunately, when we kind of look at how we spend our life, we spend you know a significant portion of time at work, probably second um, uh, significant portion is hopefully sleeping and you know, <laughs> there aren't necessarily that many extra hours in the uh, in the day at least not a work day but at least setting aside some time for the people that you prior tra- uh, prioritize most I think is important mm-hmm. absolutely and who does the cooking so <laughs> it's funny I used to do all the cooking and he used to do all the cleaning um, mm-hmm. but during residency and fellowship we actually ended up living apart for some years so I taught him how to do the cooking um, mm-hmm. how to cook like a, a a range of basic meals and so now that's really paid off because now <laughs> during the week he typically cooks because he gets home earlier than I do and so mm-hmm. he's a high school teacher and right now he's on summer break so he's definitely has the extra time so yeah, he cooks during the week and then during the weekend usually I'm doing the cooking because I'll cook kind of more elaborate things from a variety of things. Yeah, I love that. Good trade-off in there. And what's coming up for you in these next few months? Transitions at work and expansion of your practice? Yeah, so I am leaving my hospital practice and going to back to private practice. And I'm going to go back part-time so that I can spend more time on uh, coaching as well as uh, my real estate investing. And so again, that you know was something that a coaching mindset really helped me with because for a long time, I wouldn't have wanted to cut back um, because it would mean you no know, making less. I'm definitely going to make significantly less working part-time. Uh, but you know, if I'm happy doing it and also, you know, I can potentially be making more income with my real estate investing and 
you know, building my coaching business. So it's really an investment in myself and giving myself the space to do that and to be able to do that without burning out, without, you know, burning the candle at two ends. Mm -hmm. And just seeing that being able to reduce each of those allows you to enjoy them both more. Kind of like when we prune things in the garden, right? It can actually blossom when it's given some space for those different plants to cross pollinate in there. Yeah. I love that analogy. We've heard so many different ways from the way you support your patients in their vision, your colleagues with burnout and everyone to gain a sense of financial capacity. How would you say that you see yourself for the health of all things? Yeah. So I think health and wealth, certainly all important. Financial health is uh, definitely part of health um, with the health of all things and, you know, your mental health, you know, it's something ignored a lot in our country, but it's just so important. I think we're starting to realize how more and more important it is. Absolutely. You know, it's been through these conversations for me that I see how much financial health really is an undercurrent. We think about how much we think about money, you know, how much we worry about money. And if we can reduce that and just simply understand more about it, there's so much more space for us to engage in life with a lot more freedom. I'm so glad you're doing this work. Thank, Please thank let you. our listeners know where they can find you. Yeah, so my website is www.wealthymindsetmd.com. I also have a YouTube channel, um, which actually is probably easiest just to go to the website and click on YouTube, but I've got lots of videos there. Excellent. And are you currently taking on new clients, both for potential burnout prevention and treatments and financial independence? I am. Excellent. And how about your practice for those who might be in your area? Yeah, so I will be at Ice Ophthalmology starting in September uh, 2021, and I am open to taking new patients. If you're in the Cleveland area on the east side, come on by. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here to share your story and for doing this great work. I see so many opportunities for physicians to gain health through their work with you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Osteopathic Life, Conversations for the Health of All Things. Please take a moment to like, rate, and review the podcast. And if you would like to be featured as a guest or know someone you'd like to nominate as a guest for an episode, please let me know at thisosteopathiclife at gmail.com. Visit the website at thisosteopathiclife.com or visit me on Instagram and Facebook at This Osteopathic Life. Thank you so much for listening.